0: The House come to order if members can take their seats.
1: This budget is a huge job maker and the number one solution
2: to economic insecurity is a job.
0: Hungry children can't learn and it's our responsibility to try to help.
1: Equality and opportunity.
0: I believe most people are here because they want to do some good.
1: Welcome to this special episode of Capital Ideas. They're all special, really, but what's different this time around is that we're joined by two lawmakers, which is twice as many as we usually have, and we have one from each chamber of the legislature. Representative Jessica Bateman of Olympia and Senator Mona Doss of Kent are working together on legislation designed to ease the affordable housing crunch in Washington. They'll tell you about it in a minute. First, I'll say what I say every episode, which is that we call this podcast Capital Ideas because it's where members of the Majority Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives, Democrats, of course, sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Now I need to tweak that a little. As I've said, we have a senator joining us as well, and we're not really at the Capitol. Like every Capital Ideas podcast for the last two years, we did this one via Zoom. We hope we can change that soon. One final thing, your host today is Emily Tasaka, a member of the House Democratic Caucus staff. So this is the last you'll hear from me for the next half hour. The first voice you'll hear belongs to Emily and the first lawmaker to speak will be Representative Bateman. We recorded this Thursday, February 3rd, 2022 and it starts now.
0: Welcome to Capital Ideas. Thank you for joining us, Senator Das, Representative Bateman. It's so great to have you both here. We are here to talk about your middle housing legislation. So to get us started, can you tell us what is middle housing? Thank you
3: so much for having us here today. We're very excited to talk about Homes for Washington Act, which we have both sponsored. It's governor request legislation. It's moving in both the Senate and in the House. And you're right, it does refer to middle housing. And that is a question we get. Middle housing refers to housing that is in the range between what you would think of as a single family homes and apartments. So it's all of the residential housing types that are in between those two things. That's why they call it the missing middle, because we don't see it very much anymore being built. And in many cases, it's outlawed. And the types of homes that we're talking about are things like duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, you can go all the way up to a sixplex, townhomes, cottage housing, those types of modest home choices that used to be legal and in fact are now made illegal in many cities in Washington
2: state. And for me, middle housing is something that I desire. So I live in an apartment, I live in Kent. My rent is $1,600 a month for a two bedroom, not a very nice area, not a very nice neighborhood. Uh, 350-unit apartment complex. And I know some of my colleagues, including Rep Bateman, pay a lot less than that for their mortgage. And so I talk about middle housing as something that I desire. The average sales price for a home in my area is about half a million, 500,000. I can't afford that. I can't move into a condo because there aren't any in my district. I can't move into a townhouse. There aren't any in my district. And I can't afford a $500,000 home. So I'm in that missing middle where if there was a condo, I would have moved into it years ago to start building equity. But the problem is, is that I'm paying rent. It's more than half my salary. So the missing middle bill is so incredibly important because simply put, if I need it, then others need it. And if I am stuck in this apartment, that means somebody else can't move into it. Someone who's trying to move from subsidized housing or from a one-bedroom apartment into my two-bedrooms. And I tell this story at the beginning of every bill hearing because it hasn't changed. And in fact, it's gotten worse because housing has gotten even more expensive in my area. More people can't afford Seattle. The average sales price for a home in Seattle is $980,000. So they're doing what I call drive till you can buy or drive till you can afford. And what that does is it prevents people from living and working in the same place. It increases their cost because they are paying for gas to and from their work to their home, which is sometimes 30, 40 miles. They are also increasing greenhouse gas emissions. They're also increasing their cost because there's more repair. There's more road repair. There's more gas. And also let's talk about the mental anguish of being away from your family for hours at a time because you're commuting back and forth. And let's talk about road rage. Let's talk about being sedentary in your car for an hour or two a day. I mean, there's so many negative effects of people living further and further away from where they work.
0: That's a great and deeply compelling illustration of the problem. And it's great that this bill has a really robust solution to address that. And if if middle housing is so critical and can solve all of these interconnected problems, why has it been outlawed in the past?
3: Well, that's a good question. And in fact, in the early 1900s in many cities, these types of middle housing or modest home choices were legal. If you go to some of the oldest neighborhoods in my district, in Olympia, it's not uncommon to see a fourplex in that neighborhood. What happened was over time, we saw restrictive zoning that was really aimed at restricting access and excluding people. Um, You saw that with redlining, which specifically excluded people of color and Black residents in Washington state. Over time, redlining was outlawed. However, what occurred after that was a a shift to what we call single family zoning, which means of your residential land use area in the city if it's zoned for single family residential, only one type of home can be built there, which is a single family home. And I think one of the things that gets lost when we start talking about this topic in particular gets very technical. We start talking about things like zoning and setbacks and infrastructure costs and local control, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about. And these are very technical or philosophical terms. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is people because every single person in Washington has to have stable housing. We're seeing the ramifications of not having enough stable housing with our homelessness crisis that just continues unabated. The real problem is that we don't have enough housing to keep up with our population growth. We've experienced economic development and job growth in Washington, and we haven't seen a correlating increase in homes being built to accommodate our population growth. And the rules of economics do apply to housing. If you have too much demand and not enough supply, you see that inflationary increase year over year. Senator Doss mentioned the city of Seattle home prices in King County, the median home price is $830,000. In my county, in Thurston County, it is $480,000. Every year, these prices continue to rise and skyrocket way outside of the reach of middle-income families, let alone low-income families in Washington state. So if we're in a housing crisis because we don't have enough housing to keep up with our population, why is that? Why don't we have enough housing? There are real systemic challenges and barriers, including how we allow housing to be built in Washington. The state of Washington has granted the authority to decide what is legal to build and where to local city councils. Every single city in Washington state is in charge of making its own decisions about what type of housing can be built and where. This is a statewide problem. It's a statewide housing crisis. You know, in my community, we have people that live in Lacey and work in Olympia. It doesn't make sense to make these decisions at the local level in terms of housing markets actually play out. In addition to that, we've been delegating this authority to cities for decades and it's not working. So I think when half of renters in Washington are spending a third or more, up to half their income on rent, when home ownership is only affordable in seven counties for first-time homebuyers in Washington State and they're all on the east side of the mountains, when people are being priced out of living in the communities that they work in, having to drive further and further from work when they cannot afford their rent, That is the time where we have to reassess and say, why isn't this working? Let's do something about it. This is not a radical idea. This is a reasonable, common sense approach to addressing what is a statewide crisis for families across Washington state. I think that we should be planning a future for the children of Washington to be able to live in the state that they grew up in and decreasing displacement in our communities.
2: Rep Bateman talked about the housing shortage and supply and demand. Right now, it's estimated that we're 250,000 units short. That's not just short in Seattle or short in Tacoma or Everett or Olympia. We're short in Twist. We're short in Kashmir. We're short in Wenatchee and Walla Walla and everything in between. And the only way to solve this crisis is to build more housing. We have got to incentivize builders to build. It's not a silver bullet solution. There's not one thing that we can do to fix the housing crisis. We have to do all of it. This problem is one that we all need to solve. And what I'm tired of hearing is listening to legislators recognize that there is a housing crisis in their community, but then want the problem to be solved in another community. And that's just not okay. There's a term called a NIMBY, and that's called not in my backyard. And what we need is more YIMBYs to say yes in my backyard, because we can't say this is a crisis anymore without saying, come build in my area. And so that's why I want to turn those NIMBYs into YIMBYs and get more housing built. And again, I have literally brought this housing bill or similar bills like this for the last four years. This is a bill that has broad support, not only advocates in all the communities, but city councils in a lot of these communities, mayors in some of these communities. We've got Fuse Washington, the building industry. We have so much broad support on this bill. I'm really looking forward to getting it over the finish line. And I'll tell you what's different this year. We have been talking about the housing crisis for so long that people are finally looking for solutions. It's also been, for me, a breath of fresh air to work with Rep Bateman, who is equally as passionate about this issue as I am. And this year we finally have the governor on board. He's bringing the gravitas to this issue and saying no more. We can no longer kick this can down the road. And I'm honored to be at the table fighting for black and brown communities. I will also share with you that 76% of homeowners are white. If 76% of homeowners are white, we have a problem. And if we cannot get more black and brown people into homes that they own, we are not creating pathways out of poverty and we are not creating a stepping stool into the middle class.
0: I wanna revisit something you said about our unhoused neighbors. And this question is for the both of you. It's a long way to go from, a tent by the road to a duplex by a transit hub. What, what do we do to get people from that point A to point B?
3: Well, it's a good question. Um, as Senator Doss mentioned in her earlier comments, this bill is not a silver bullet solution to addressing our housing crisis. We need multitudes to address what has become a systemic problem. When you don't have enough housing to keep up with your population, and the supply is so low and the demand is so high, you see that, that increase in prices. It's just it's supply and demand. That's how it works. The unfortunate part about that is it's locking people out of opportunity that can't afford these super inflated housing prices, but it's also impacting those that are at the lowest end of that economic ladder uh, because as they see those prices go up, I think there's a Zillow or report for every $100 increase up to a 15% increase in homelessness because for the people at the lowest end of that economic ladder, they cannot afford any increase, let alone $100. And we're seeing with rent prices, I mean, people are getting their rent increased, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month upwards. So that makes them housing insecure and more likely to fall into homelessness, especially for folks that are spending a third to half their income on their housing, even not necessarily really low-income people or people, say, with a disability who are really the most vulnerable. So we need to do a ton of different things at once. We need to continue investing in the housing trust fund, which is our largest bucket of money for investing in affordable housing. We do need to continue investing in subsidized housing through that avenue. We also need to work on increasing that supply of housing and just having a long-term, what I call it is a diffuse absorption of our population growth across the state because what we have currently is this arbitrary limit on what can be built and where. And I think we should remove that. I think that that will benefit everyone because we're evaluating this system currently, and this is going to get into like economic wonkiness. But, um, you know, what happens currently is one city will change zoning and allow maybe some middle housing to be built. And then maybe it's expensive because there's not enough housing at all and they're trying to absorb that growth. And that'll be used as an example of we shouldn't legalize this type of housing. But the fact is everything is connected. You cannot evaluate an unhealthy system that is short a quarter of a million homes. You can't evaluate the health of the system or how these policies are gonna play out. To me, this is common sense while we do all these other things. We also need to create much more permanent supportive housing for most of our chronically homeless individuals in Washington State, which in 2018, the Office of Financial Management produced a report on an analysis of our behavioral health system in Washington. One element of that was the need for permanent supportive housing for chronically homeless individuals. And at that time, the shortage, get ready for it, was 17,000 beds and we're creating about a thousand beds of permanent supportive housing per year. We are dealing with chronically homeless individuals that need housing with wraparound support services, which is what permanent supportive housing is. Um, There's a couple bills this year that relate tangentially to that, that I'm hopeful for. Um, Frank Chopp's bill on a medical necessity for permanent supportive housing and then Representative Macri's bill on adding a permanent supportive housing expert to our affordable housing council. I think that's gonna help us get there and create a plan We definitely need to do that. But then there's also a lot of unhoused individuals that are living in their car or that you would see on the street and you wouldn't identify them as being homeless. They've become homeless because they're spending half their income on their housing and something came up, an unexpected medical expense, their car broke down and something led to them all of a sudden being unhoused. But given you know, a couple months of assistance and help, like with rapid rehousing, for instance, they can get back on their feet. But what I would say is once they get back on their feet with the exponential increases of the prices, it's going to be even harder. It's much better for us to keep those folks housed through things like rental assistance, which we also need to invest in. But the systemic problem is that we don't have enough housing. We have to build more housing. And the reason why we need to take this on at the state level is because at the local level, it can get become very contentious to talk about allowing more housing to be built. There's incentive for folks that are homeowners that have you know, lived in established communities for long periods of time, that I can understand have a very personal connection to what their community looks like and what it is like to not support new housing construction near them. I mean, think about it, like who wants to say, I want increased traffic, increased construction with the construction folks building these houses and I want more neighbors and I want more people. I mean, it's just a natural inclination to say, you know what, when your city council asks you, hey, should we zone for more people over here, it's really natural to just be like, you know what, no, I don't I don't want that. And the people that are the most motivated in the city council system to go to those meetings, to voice their opinion, to email their city council people, to sign petitions, to hire $40,000 land use attorneys, to challenge it at the code management hearings board, are those very people that are already benefiting in the current system, being homeowners having that wealth, having that privilege. And so this is really the bill about our future and we're here trying to speak up for the people that aren't currently in that system. It's harder for people that are working two jobs to engage with a bureaucratic system to advocate for themselves. I was a city council person. We went through zoning changes in Olympia. It took us four years and 44 public meetings and 1,200 pages of written comment. I guarantee you that was harder for people that speak english as a second language for people that have maybe a fear of institutional settings like a city council chamber for their own reasons let alone if they're undocumented for people that are not used to navigating and don't know how to contact their city council people or parents that are just busy like having their kids you know like especially with the pandemic like you know they're just trying to like survive in their lives right not go to 44 public meetings but who is motivated to go people that have time people that have property, have that investment, who are also seeing their home prices go up exponentially. Like me, I bought my home in 2017 for $240,000 and now it's valued at 400,000. Some people like that. Some people are happy with the equity that they're building at this just increasingly exponential rate. When I see that and I look at that, I think I couldn't afford a $400,000 home in 2017. I was just recently divorced, single income, I could not afford that today. And when I see that amount of wealth creation, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to my house. I didn't do anything to earn that. And that tells me that other people like me don't have any opportunity to engage in this system. It's an unhealthy market for a reason. We need to build more housing and people have a lot of reasons to not want to build more housing, which is why we need to address it at the state level.
2: Couldn't agree more. I, you know, the thing is, is that because Jessica was able to figure out how to navigate and buy a house in 2017, you know, she has over $200,000 of unearned income, right? And that's income. And she won't be taxed on that. So when she sells her home someday, that is tax-free money. That is definitely navigating the system as a white woman, right? And so talk about women of color. Like I was Listen, I bought my first house at 26 years old. I was the first in my friend group to do that. My parents owned a home. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Well, most people don't even realize they have a dream of home ownership because they're used to renting or their families have rented or they don't know anyone that's owned a home. They think you have to put 20% down. They don't know the rules. They don't know that you can buy a house with down payment assistance. People don't know those things. And, oh, by the way, they're spending all their money on rent. One of the things that uh, Rep Bateman just said about, you know, all the people that are currently unhoused, they go from missing a payment because they had a medical emergency or a car emergency. Next thing you know, they're late, they get evicted, then they can't rent again because now they have an eviction on their record. Okay, so maybe there's then couch surfing for a little while, which how long do you get to couch surf if you have a couple of kids? So you're couch surfing for a little while. Those people are not counted as unhoused. And then they live in their cars for a little bit. Those people are not counted as unhoused. And then eventually, if they don't have any supports along the way, they end up on the streets or they end up being unhoused. And some of the programs that we have in our state are excellent. And I'm so proud to support them with our housing trust fund. Some of these folks literally need $10. We had somebody that spoke in our... Housing committee last year who said they were $10 short and then they got an eviction notice. If there was a 1 800 number for them to call to say, hey, I need 10 bucks or 100 or can you pay this utility bill or whatever, if it's under $1,000, it is a great benefit to our state to just help them out so that they do not end up in someone else's home on their couch or in their car or worse yet on the streets. And then you've got all the other host of issues that go along with that, trying to keep a job, your mental health is on the brink. Then you might turn to drugs. Keeping people housed is better for the state. It is better for the individual that are going through this. And there's lots of great statistics on this. You know, most people are unhoused, you know, for just a couple of months. They just need to get back on their feet. And then there is the definition of chronic homelessness, which is somebody who is homeless or unhoused for many years. And those are the folks that do need what what Rep Bateman was talking about, those wraparound services, mental health, job training, drug abuse supports, maybe getting things off their permanent record, whatever it is. But I will tell you what, together as a state, we have a lot of resources to help folks. Now, how does that tie into middle housing? It ties into middle housing because it is a supply and demand issue. Funny thing about supply and demand is it works. And right now we simply do not have enough supply to meet the demand. And until we build more housing in every single community, then we are not gonna get out of this housing crisis. And we need to turn your NIMBY attitude into a YIMBY attitude and say, yes, we wanna house more people in our, in our backyard. And I'll tell you what's great about like downtown Kent, the more people that move to downtown Kent, the cooler amenities we have. We have a movie theater, we have great shops, we have great coffee shops. I can walk to a lot of things. You know, and when you live in a smaller community, those amenities are further out. So I do want to just encourage folks that are still listening. Thank you. Please, you know, reach out to your city council folks and let them know that you are interested in having more housing in your community and that you want to be part of the solution and not part of the continued problem.
0: Well, Rhett Bateman, I, I love what you said before that this is a policy for the future from what you both said. This is a policy that cares about people. It puts people first. And I think that a lot of people are really gonna be counting on it. So if this policy passes, how how soon can we expect some changes or how soon can we expect people to see a difference in their lives?
3: Yeah, this is a policy for the future and it's a long-term solution. But the reality is If we pass this bill tomorrow and it went into effect immediately, you wouldn't see any difference for at least three years, because that's how long it takes for construction to typically happen for a residential home, and that's when things go well. So the current bill that's um, been revised out of the House that is moving and hopefully getting a hearing by Sunday and moving out of appropriations will allow for up to four plexes within a half a mile of a major transit stop and duplexes on every residential lot um, in Washington for cities above 10,000. It will be incorporated in uh, a phase in approach for cities as they go through their next comprehensive plan updates. Uh, The next comprehensive plan update for the four largest counties in Washington occurs in 2024 and they'll have to pass codes concurrent with the adoption of their plans uh, in late 2025. So three years after that, unfortunately. We, that's one of the reasons why we have to take this very seriously. We need to act now because no matter what we do, you know, we aren't gonna pass a bill that's gonna go into effect immediately. We're gonna give cities time. So that's why we don't have time to waste. We have to act on this because it's a long-term solution. This problem was not created overnight. It was created over decades of the systemic undersupply of housing. That's why we need to take action and we need to take it really seriously and act with a sense of urgency because this crisis is urgent for our constituents. And I think some of us are a little bit further removed here in the legislature from the crisis that average working people are going through. But when you talk to your constituents and you go out and see what they're concerned with, This is a kitchen table issue. This is an issue that is impacting families across Washington state. I have a little sister who's a nurse. She's 26, she makes good money. She would love to buy a home in King County, start a family, start that next chapter of her life. She's living at home with our parents in Kent in Senator Doss's district because she can't afford That median home price in King County, which is $830,000, her and her partner, her longtime partner have been looking at homes, they can't afford $600,000. So what are they doing? They're looking all the way up to Snohomish County, all the way up to Enumclaw, these far distances, and they don't want that. They want to live near the city that they work in so they can spend more time with their family and live in amenity-rich communities, which is what young people today want. This is the future, and we are stuck in a system that is based on an antiquated vision of what our communities look like and how they grow, and we need to change that for the future of Washingtonians.
2: Rep Bateman brings up so many great points. I also want to really highlight one main thing that we have not talked about yet today. This bill does not mandate anyone to build a duplex a triplex a quad or a sixplex it simply simply allows it so single family housing is still available so if some builder wants to still build a single family house they still can what this allows is that you can build a duplex or a triplex that single family zoning is not going away we are simply saying that every lot has an ability to add a duplex. So you can expand your house and add a duplex, or you can do an ADU, you can, you know, create a duplex within your own home with a little bit of renovation. There's lots of things that you can do. And before you had to go and get permits uh, to, you know, get the zoning changed, or, you know, at least permit your own home for that. That is, that's what this bill is about. It gives uh, it, it. also gives homeowners option. I'm encouraged. Um, the bill has moved not only in the Senate to the Ways and Means Committee, but it's also moved in the House to the Appropriations Committee. So the bill is moving this year further than it's ever gone. I'm very proud of that. It's been a, such a great experience to work with Rep Bateman. We have had so much press on this bill, I was saying, and I'm proud.
0: Well, we are about to lose the Zoom, so I do want to wrap up. Thank you both so much for your time. It's been, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and I wish you all the best of luck moving forward with this legislation.
2: Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for having us. Take care.
1: That's it for this edition of Capital Ideas. If you want to keep up with the bills we talked about today, they're House Bill 1782 and Senate Bill 5670. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, why not subscribe to Capital Ideas in Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is your state government. What goes on here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you and for everyone. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening.